Let's turn then to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm 27. We'll read verse. the first six verses is where our thoughts will come from today. It begins, The Lord is my light and my salvation, as has the ESV has titled this, Psalm of David, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter. In the day of trouble, He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. If you, um, for your own record, keep title uh, or keep record of the titles, the title today for the message is What Do You Want? What do you want? I have taken this passage of Scripture a number of times through the years as a text that the Lord has placed on my heart, and it's where we feel directed once again. We want to ask you that question. Never really taken this specific approach. It's where God has directed us, we believe, or I believe, and I want to ask you that question. What do you want? Probably there's a lot of things that you could answer that question with, many things that you would list. But I hope by the end of the time that we have together today that you'll have a laser and a very clear focus on the question and that you will understand your answer, what it really is and truly is. What do you want? These first three verses of our reading today reveal a tremendous confidence in God. Tremendous confidence in God. These verses have been a great help to countless Christians through the years as they faced the hardships of their life, as they watched the hardship of the lives of those that they loved, as they faced assaults of enemies. These verses have been an encouragement for people for thousands thousands of years, and I believe if time goes on, they will continue to be so, these first three verses. And in some ways, they are a reminder to us of our access as believers in God. They are a reminder, these first three verses are, of our otherworldly resources that we have available at our disposal. We don't look look to the world's strength. That ends. That is feeble. That is temporary. 
We don't look to this world for our confidence. That will fade. No matter where you are in your life, if you're not yet very old and maybe you have confidence in some things in this world and you've not yet lived long enough to understand that that confidence is misplaced, I want to tell you today, and I know it will make me sound like a curmudgeon, and I hope not, but I know it will, and I will tell you that whatever it is that you placed your confidence in, if it's in this world, you will discover one day, if you have not already, that it will fade. You will be left without confidence because it will not be sufficient to carry you through the struggles that this life is going to throw your way. But these three verses give us a strength and and a confidence, a fearlessness, a purpose that far exceeds anything we'll find in the world. And in fact, I think to many, these first three verses, if we were to talk like this today, it can almost sound arrogant to many. It can sound arrogant to the world that we would have such confidence that we would be able to say with a straight face and an honest heart that the Lord is my light. He is my salvation and that I will fear therefore no one. That can sound arrogant in the eyes of the world. Those who don't understand and believe can almost sound arrogant because it seems like in our politically correct climate in which we've been living now for decades, the one thing that is not allowed for us to say is anything that remotely resembles something that is objectively true for us and we know it to be true. The Lord is my light and my salvation. I will be afraid then of no one. Each of us, I think, especially if we do know the Lord and we want to follow Him in our life, I think we want these three verses to be true in our life, do we not? We want to be able to say amen with David as he writes these verses. I would love to hear the music to which they were set and the the strength of thought and the movement even of of the, the emotion of man rightly aligned with the truth of God. I can only imagine to listen to the congregation as they sung these words. And this is the kind of life I think that many of us want to live. We want our lives to be described this way. We want to live this way. Fearless, as we've said. Confident. Certain. Unshakable and immovable. in the waves of the storms of this life. And I want you to take a moment and consider your own life for just a moment here as we begin. I want you to think about what your life would look like if these words were indeed true for you. And I will say at the outset here that don't get me wrong, we all shuffle in and out of this life from day to day. The enemy assails us, our own sin, our own flesh gets in our way. I believe that's one of the reasons that we long and we look forward to the day when we would be separated from this life to the next because when we're separated from this life to the next, those of us that know the Lord, we are separated from sin and fault and failure and weakness and the lack of faith and the lack of confidence and fear. We're separated from these things. But here, we stumble, we fall, but the Lord if we will go to Him, will help us to arise again. But I want you to think about your life 
and these verses, these first three. This is not where we'll spend most of our time today, but it is the, it is where the, the base, the foundation of what is said next come from. But take a moment and consider your own life. Think about your life now. What would it look like if you could sing these words at the top of your voice without any equivocation of mind and heart, with a complete honesty and sincerity, and speak and sing these words? How would life for you be different? What would it look like? What different things would you be doing? What things that you're doing now would you no longer be doing? What people in your life would you be able to reach with the gospel of Christ if these words rung true to the depths of your heart and mind and indeed your life? And again, though most of us who know God desire to reach this place, it seems if we're honest, we don't often reach it, do we? We do fear things in the world. We are uncertain about things at times. We do feel that we are lost in the darkness when God is indeed our light. I want to get there. I want to get to this place with David. I do. I want to be able to sing this song with a full-throated shout of joy to God that you are my salvation and there are moments and there are times when I have and I can, and I, and I pray, and I hope that in the future as well that that will be the case. But I want to get to this place with David. I want to know at least something of the mindset and the inward strength that is demonstrated by these words. To live a life that is defined by what David says here in the midst of it all, and, in, and no matter what else is going on, that the Lord is my light. He is my life. He is my salvation. I will fear nothing, therefore, because He is my salvation. And if God is my salvation, then I have nothing to fear. And that is simply true. Is it true for you? Is this your life? Have we described, has David described your life in these first three verses? I I want to get there more and more. I want to be able to sing these words with David, but how do you get there? How do you live such a life as has been described in these first three verses? How do you live so fearlessly as he did? And certainly we know he did not live perfectly by any stretch. But here, the inspiration of the Spirit of God as he wrote this song and recorded it, God has preserved it for you and for me to read. He did that thousands of years ago. And he knew when David was writing this song under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, God knew that I today, on this day, would be reading it here and we would all be wrestling and thinking about these very same words. And I trust, or I pray at least, that you desire to get here as well. But how do you do that? How is this kind of life accessed? What is the key that opens this kind of Christian life that those first three verses just described? How do we get there? Well, it all comes down to my question and title, what do you want? What do you want? That's how 
That's the, that's the key. That is the access through which this blessed kind of life that was described in the first three verses is found. So then, I ask again, what do you want? And I will tell you that it is not the rarity, it is not the, the mere exception, as strange as it might be to think, often what we want is exactly what we get. Even though we don't even understand sometimes our own hearts. I believe that the answer to the question of how do we live such a life as described in the first three verses is answered in the next three, verses four through six. Where he says one thing. So this is in view of this incredible confidence that he has just written about. He says following that in verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord. Just one. I want one thing. The answer to the question for David at this moment in time in his life, what does he want? David, what do you want? It was not a long list. It was not a list of a great many things. He says, there's one thing. There's one thing I want. There's one thing that I want in my life. There's one thing that overrides them all. There's one thing that is so in my heart to desire that all the other things, all they just fade. It's, it's as if, again, all the other things that he might want his, for his family, those that he loved, for the nation that he led, for all of his own personal desires, they all just kind of fled away. And he says that there's just one thing that he wants. And so I would ask you and me today, when we are asked that question, what do you want? Do we respond? Do we respond with a great many things? Do we begin to think of all the things that we want? Or does our mind and our heart gravitate toward one thing above them all? Is there one thing that if you had it, all your other wants would pale in comparison and you would be fine without? Is there one thing in your life that is worth giving up your life for? And the phrase and the quote that we've heard before, if there's nothing in your life that you're willing to die for, then there's really nothing in your life you're willing to live for either. What is the one thing? Satan has done a great job, a tremendous job, convincing Christians, you and me, and the world as well, that it is both possible and acceptable for us to desire to succeed here in this world and equally our spiritual standing with God. But this idea, this thought that we can desire God and things in this life, these, according to Scripture, are competing desires. They will take you different directions. So what do you want and what is the one thing that you desire? And Satan will tell you, the world will tell you, your own desires will tell you that you can have both. But again, this idea is in direct contradiction to what God has taught us in His Word. In many places in Scripture, we are taught that it is God, that as God's people, we aren't 
to worry ourselves with earthly desires. We just aren't. Love not the world, John said. Jesus said this in verse six or twenty four of chapter six in Matthew. No one, I guess that includes you and me, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I didn't say that. The Son of God did. He said, he didn't say that you can't always serve God and money. He didn't say that you can't kind of serve them both. He said you cannot serve them both. And so when I ask that question, what do you want? And when God asked it of me, and, and I tried to, to answer him back, what do you want? Was the answer, there's just one thing, God, above all the others. There's one thing. I long to live a life described in those first three verses. I want to, to feel those things. I want to be those things. I want to experience a life that is described like that. Not so that the anyone can look and see me, but because I want to be with you, God. I want your presence. All the other things can be laid aside. I don't want the world and you, God. I want you. I don't want the world's riches and heaven's riches. I want heaven's treasures. And I can't have and desire both. Or I will be, as James said, that we've read even lately, a double-minded man, unstable in every way. And there is a great instability that you will experience in your life if you want it all. But that's what people say today. The, our popular culture, the Hollywood actor, um, the motivational speaker even, that you can have it all. It's a lie. You can't. You can't, and neither can I. I believe one of the reasons, even as Christians, that we get discouraged is because we're trying to balance our Christian desires with our earthly ones. I think that leads us to an imbalance and an instability and a lack of peace and certainly not living a life described in the first three verses of Psalm chapter 27 here. That attempt to live with a desire for worldly things and a desire to, for spiritual and heavenly things will inevitably lead to frustration and disappointment in both places. We've said this before as well. Not only are you going to never be the Christian that God wants you to be if you have a desire for the world and its treasures and its things, and yet you have a desire also to be a, a, a Christian and a follower of God, you're never going to please either. You'll be in this purgatory between all in for God or all in for the world, and you'll be spit out by both. You'll be ruled out by both. But I want you to understand that in, in the King James, if you read this verse, I think the translation is there's one thing I have desired. And that's that's not a that's not certainly not wrong. But the ESV here says there's one thing I have asked of the Lord. And in the in the Hebrew there is in that word the the, the a petition, an, an asking. This is a request. 
This is, this is one thing that he wanted, and it's one thing that he was asking of God. I've asked this thing. In the American Standard Version, it reads, One thing have I asked of Jehovah. He's asking for it. So if you, if you want to live, if you have in your heart a desire to live a life described like the first three verses, and you want to know how to get there, it begins by asking God to give you this one desire and above all, in such a degree that it becomes one thing for you. David knew his own human limitations. He knew that his desire alone was not going to ever be enough. He knew that he could never get to this place on his own and in his own strength. He knew that he needed God to help him. He knew that he could not have this kind of life apart from the help of God. He knew, having never heard us sing this song, he knew what we sang this morning, that I can't even walk without you holding my hand. David knew that. And so he calls out to God, God, I have one desire. It's one request of you. This is it. It is to be with you, if you summarize what he asked. It is to be in your presence. It's the one thing that I desire above all other things. Is that true in your life? Is it true in your heart? If we could all just whittle everything down and pull out our hearts and, and write down on a piece of paper what is in them and you'd removed all of the extras and all of the, the regular daily things that happen in our life that we think about in the midst of that, is there one desire that drives you through your life in your days or is there not? Some of you may have heard of or seen what they are, what they call word clouds. You take a, an article, a paragraph, or something that's been written, and you, and they'll take that, and, and the most common words that are in that writing will be in large letters and large font, and it's a kind of a creative way to summarize everything that's been written. And if in your life, does your word cloud read, I desire God? Is He the, the large letter in your life's word cloud? Or is he in small font at the edges and beside uh, all so many other things that are larger in your life and obviously therefore seemingly more important to you in your life? David knew that he could not get to this place on his own and so he asked God for it. God, I want one thing. I ask of you one thing. And again, that one thing was to be with you. No, it wasn't to be blessed by him. It was to be with Him. To be in His presence. No matter what life brought His way. And so knowing His own weakness, David makes this request of God. And again, it is a singular request. We, we often come to God with a long list of, if we're honest, and maybe this is too hard to say, but we often come to God with a long list of things that in, in the great scheme of things are, are relatively unimportant. Not really that important. Now, don't misunderstand me. Nothing is too small that God doesn't want to hear about it. Nothing. If it's vexing you, if it's a concern of your heart, God wants you to bring it to Him. 
What this reveals, though, is when we don't ask God this great, grand, singular request, God, above it all, I have these things that I desire for you to do for me and those that I love. But God, the first desire, the one desire that I have above them all, it's so large and it's so much more important to me than all these other things that it may as well be one thing, God, that I want from you. I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. I want to live here in this temporary world one step at a time in your presence. I want to know you. I want to see you here in preparation for eternity where I will see you even more clearly and continue to discover incredible, wonderful things about you. But I want to begin that process now, God. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to hear you in my heart. I want to feel you in my heart. I want to hear you in my mind. I want to understand as I look out into the world and all that I see, the mountains and the trees and the birds and all of the things that I struggle with in my life, from my boss to my to my job, to, to my family, and all those things that vex me. Father, I want to understand them in light of who you are and who you've made me. And that one day, 49 years ago, almost 50 now, when you spoke and you made me in my mother's womb to know you, I want to do that. I want to know you. And it's the most important thing in my life. What do you want? You want to live verses 1 through 3? What do you want? Because you won't get to verses 1 through 3 if you don't answer that question the way David does. God, I want you. Nothing's too small to take to God, but we often take things that are small in comparison to the big. Philippians even tells us, by the way, we know that God wants us to take things to him. Do not be anxious about anything in verses Chapter 4, verse 6 of Philippians. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests, plural, requests be made known to God. So again, do not misunderstand what I'm saying to you and what I believe the Bible says to us all. God is not indifferent to our needs, our fears, or our desires. He's not. He's not indifferent. He desires to give us what we need and he knows what we need. He wants to quiet your fear. He does. He wants to take that fear that you feel in your heart right now about whatever that situation is in your life. And he wants to take it from a, a loud cacophony of a crowd chanting as in a sports arena. He wants to take that fear and he wants to deaden that sound. And he wants you to be like David when David says, you're my salvation. Who am I going to fear? What am I going to be afraid of? He wants to take that fear that you're feeling about whatever the situation is in your life and He wants to deaden it and He wants you to not feel it. But you're going to have to desire Him in order to get it. Desire Him above all other things. He's not indifferent to your needs or mine. He desires to give us what He wants, what we need, I should say. He desires to give, to get rid of our fears. He desires to give us the right desires of our heart. God is, God is in heaven and therefore He is far above and beyond us all. Yet He desires to be with us in our earthly lives. Aiden and I were having a conversation the other day and we studied this in school when he was a, in high school, in systematic theology, this idea that theologians describe as being the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. God is above. He is all-encompassing. 
He is so far above us, it could not, we could not begin to measure it, and yet he is imminent. He is with us, and he is near, and he is here. He is transcendent, and he is imminent. God is in heaven, and God is here. God is and can be in both places at the same time. And just a few thoughts came to me as I kind of tried to consider the truth of that lesson from the Scripture. God is and can be in everywhere at all times, transcendent above us and yet imminent with us. He is on the throne of heaven, overseeing all things. He sees every flap of every hummingbird's wing. He sees with perfect vision the largest planet in all of the universe. And he sees at the same time the individual subatomic particles that make it up. He sees every sparrow that falls according to Christ. He hears every sound that is made everywhere. He knows every word that crosses the lips of every person on the planet. Beyond that, he knows every thought that crosses the mind of every person on the planet. And yet, he is with me. He is so far above me. And yet, he is with me. He knows every tear. I cry. Every one of them. There is not a tear I have shed in righteousness or in a lack of faith that he has not counted. And I believe as a heavenly father who sent his son to die for me that it grieves his heart to see me cry. But he has done all that he could possibly do. And he has prepared the way to a place where he will wipe away every one of them. He knows every tear you cry and he knows everything there is to know in the world. He knows every fear that I have. He knows every desire of my heart. He knows more about me than I know about myself. And he wants to bless in all of it. He wants to bless everyone and all things, and yet he wants to bless me. But what do I want? What do you want? In light of this truth of God's transcendence, his aboveness, and his eminence with us here, in light of that, perhaps it's more clearly understood how much of what is Ask of God in prayer is of secondary importance. It's secondary, not unimportant, but it's of secondary importance. It really, is it really, let me ask you this, is it really that important? Really? Is it really that important that we get along well financially in this life if we do not get along well with God? Is it really that important? Is it really that important that we live long, healthy, and easy lives here if we fail to live that long and healthy life in the presence of God? I believe this request of David's ought to be before every other request in our life. Indeed, all the other requests of God that we make ought to be made in light of this singular request. We make them God has said to us, as we read in Philippians, to bring our desires before Him and to Him. But may this be the single thing that we want above all the others. 
And you know, sometimes we see people and we ourselves, we bring things of far less importance to him. See athletes praying and, and I don't want to, I'm not casting stones at that. I'm really not. Because their heart may be as David's. I can't tell that. Sometimes, you know, we think of all kinds of things and times to pray, but they're, but we, we make those requests of God without this grand request also being true in our life. And there's a problem when that happens. Do you see how all the other requests that we make of God, you see how all those other requests must be made and heard, they are heard by God, by the way, in light of whether or not this singular request is true in our life. You know, God knows. He knows what you want. He knows what is in your heart first. Do you see that if this request, this request that David has given to us and shown to us, do you know that, do you see that if that request is not true in your life, then all the other requests you make they can be dangerously close to an attempt to manipulate God or to use Him for your purposes rather than to submit to Him to be used for His purposes. If this request that David has just given us in verse 4 is not true in our life, any other request we make of God, it's dangerous ground, actually. It should be considered and thought of. I'm not saying not to take your request to God. Please do not hear that today. But if you want to live verses 1 through 3, the answer to what do you want needs to be the same as David's. Has God not said to us very clearly that He wants our hearts and our minds and He wants all of us? Is that not what He has said to us from Deuteronomy and even, of course, in Genesis in its own way and all through the prophets and the New Testament? This is what we are told God wants from us. If we do not desire to give Him what He asks of us, what expectation should we have that He will give us what we ask of Him? If our greatest request of Him is not this request, this one thing, to be with Him, to be in His presence, are we not missing the point entirely of certainly the Christian life and life itself? If this is not the way we answer that question, what do we want? Do we not reveal our great unawareness of what is truly important when we ask God for earthly blessings but never ask Him to help us to always and ever be in His presence? We'll move quickly through the remainder of this. That took much longer than I anticipated, but I want you to see just a couple of things before we close. One thing I've I ask of the Lord, David says, and he says, that will I seek after. I will seek it. This is not a passive hope. This is not a passive thing. You want to live verses 1 through 3? Then the desire of your heart needs to be what David's was, which is, God, I want to be in your presence. Not only that, that desire needs to see action, needs to see activity, needs to see concrete things in your life. I'm going to seek after it, David says. He knows he can't get to it on his own. He knows he doesn't have the strength on his own. And yet he says, I'm going to seek it. I'm going to look for it. That will I seek after. I believe is one Hebrew word. It's to seek to find something that's lost or missing. So maybe you've never had this in your life. 
you've never had the presence of God in your life, then commit now, I ask you and I beg you, to seek after it. To seek it. He's not going to open your heart and implant it there apart from you seeking it. It's just not how this works. And maybe you do know God, but it's missing in your day-to-day life. Then commit again to renew yourself to daily. I'm going to seek this one thing, this thing that is most important, this presence with God in my life. David is not satisfied with just wanting God's presence in his life. He resolves to actively seek after it. How many, though, of us and other Christians perhaps have this one desire? Really, if you boil everything down, they have this desire, yet there are no legs to their prayers. No activity following their prayers. No daily reading of Scripture. No consistently being in fellowship with other believers. No committing oneself to to live a life honorable before God and before man. And not not a life that's desiring to share Christ with those around them. They, They have this desire, but there's no activity. There's no habits in life that would be a seeking of God daily. A great lack of action behind the desire. They come and maybe we, maybe they, maybe we sit on sun, in on Sunday service. We hear God's Word and freely agree with what is being said even. But somehow it ends there. Nothing in life is changed. No action, no activity is manipulated or adjusted or changed or altered as a result of this single desire. But I will tell you today, if your heart's desire singularly is to be in God, be with God in His presence, that's going to lead to activity and action in your life. It's going to. It's not just a desire. It's an active thing. But those who have this desire but leave no or put no action to it, Monday in their life looks much, much different than Sunday. Monday is a day spent fully invested and fully active in the world. Though they have that Christian desire within them, they match that desire with earthly endeavors and they become unstable and they do not live the life described in verses 1 through 3 here. So let us not merely desire to be with Him. Let us put that desire into action in our lives. We'll turn toward a close as we look at the benefits of obtaining this desire that are outlined. And we've already, of course, read them in the large benefits, but there are follow-on Benefits. Not only will we live as verses 1 through 3 describe, we listen to the great promises that David has it, that this is true. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. A life lived with this singular desire. A life lived of what do you want? If it's answered with God's presence, that will be a life lived seeing the beauty of God. Apart from God, There is no lasting or true beauty in the world. There isn't. It's the only place you'll find it is in Him. And He he sprinkles His beauty in this world. He scatters it here and there. And if we're able to see it, we can glorify and praise Him. But if we're looking for beauty apart from Him, you'll see nothing but corruption, corrosion, despair, and darkness. But if you see Him in your life, in the things of your life, you'll see beauty. He says to inquire in his temple. A life lived with this singular desire is a life lived with the privilege of prayer. Apart from God, there is no one to whom you can go for the answers that you seek. You're going to have to go to him. 
But if you have Him and He is your desire and you have made that your life's ambition, then you will be living a life with the privilege of prayer. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. David says you will live a life in the comfort of God's protection. And apart from God, there is no peace or protection to be found. Notice, by the way, David doesn't say He will hide me if the day of trouble arrives. He says, He will hide me in the day. The day of trouble is assumed. It is assumed. It is not surprising to him when it happens. And he knows and he says, My heart's desire is singular. It is to be with God. What do I want? I want him and his presence. And he lives his life in the shelter and the comfort and the protection of God. So what is your one desire? What is your one request? The one request that if you articulated it to him, to me, to yourself, what is it? What's the greatest desire of your heart? I think again, we can all agree. I I think we all love to be able to sing with as loud a voice as we possibly could, with as much beauty as we could, could muster up that song that was sung in those first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet will I be confident. Is this your one desire or is it something else? Is it something that when compared to what we've discussed in this passage is of far less importance? Do you long for God's presence in your life like David did here? If you do, if that is your heart's desire, then what are you going to do? As David said, I'm going to seek after it. What What are you going to do tomorrow to bring action to that desire? God grant that the desire of our heart would be to be with Him first among all other things. And furthermore, to give us the strength and the wisdom necessary to put that desire into action into our lives so that we can live confidently like verses 1-3 through describe. I pray that God has spoken to you through His Word if there's something that God wants you to do, to say, um, to obey Him in, make this desire the first thing and follow Him where He leads you. One step at a time. You will never know all the answers. One step at a time. He will be there. He will protect you. He will shelter you. He will provide you for you. And you'll be in His presence. And there's nothing greater than that. Let's have a song.